this is really where you come in as an expert who has done a really great series with uh, Tim Banal and Banal of America about COVID. Um, you're not bought and paid for by anybody, and you've got the education <laughs> to speak authoritatively on these things. What do you think the future of COVID is? I mean, before the fear was it will come back in the fall or the winter and it might be worse or it probably will be worse than it is now. But now that we've been out in the streets together, uh, is this even going away for the summer? Aloha, ladies and germs. It's Jeremy Vaney. You're listening to our Undoing Radio, and you're listening to part two of my interview with microbiologist Tyler Kochan. Uh, this week we will be discussing COVID, the future, what the future may hold for us with this disease. Um, he, this is his wheelhouse, folks. He is a newly retired university professor. Dealing with such things, so um, he is a doctor you can trust. He is beholden to no one. For those of you who are paranoid about such things, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not. Um, so he's going to give us the skinny on what he sees moving forward, because Lord knows this ain't going away anytime soon. One cool thing about this episode is... That we uh, recorded it months and months ago. So you can already test Tyler. You can gauge whether or not his predictions moving out of summer are true by what he talked about seeing would likely happen over the summer in his crystal ball or whatever it is doctors use. Then we'll get into some of the environmental issues pertaining to the extinction event as he calls it, that we find ourselves in, um, or at least the potential extinction event. It's certainly been an extinction event for a number of species of um, animals, plants, peoples living in the Amazon. Um, of course, we haven't cared about that. Uh, we've cared about it, some of us, in passing. We read these articles, you know, throughout the 90s and aughts, as they say. And uh, we go, oh, that's that's horrible. Um, you know, however many kajillions of species of whatever go extinct uh, every day. That's terrible. Anyway, what's on TV? I mean, this has kind of been, been our lives, right? We read about dying birds and then we play angry birds. And we feel helpless and we feel hopeless. It seems that that helplessness, to me anyway, and that hopelessness, um, have, they've, they've given way to, in a lot of people, to nonsensical conspiracy theories, given way to believing that you are more educated as someone with zero education in a specialty like, say, microbiology, uh, that you're more educated than a doctor is. Um, given way to the nonsense of our ego deflection of the fear that not only are we on the precipice of our own demise, but we've done it to ourselves. 
And we so don't want to deal with that, right? So it used to be that we kind of felt bad about it, but we still did nothing. And now it's so out of our control, um, so topsy-turvy, as to call into question whether we really had any control or not. Um, but yet we're still here. We're still alive. And so we're still struggling with the illusions of our, of our society. The illusions that we grew up in that are, even though they're sort of crumbling all around us, even so they're, they're sort of, uh, blowing away in the wind. This is what happens. Not to everyone, of course, but to a large segment of the population. We go crazy. Why do we go crazy? Because the logical, rational underpinnings that we thought were underpinnings of our society have shown themselves to be false, to just be rationalizations, rationalisms, um, or to be rational to the extent that things work the way we hoped they worked and the way they, we set them up to the end of them working that way. And now here we are living at the end of the way um, we've set up society. It's no longer feasible to destroy large swaths of forest for like Ikea furniture, right? Sorry, Ikea. <laughs> They're always the punching bag, right? Ever since Fight Club. Um, but you get the point. We're at the end of this working for us. We're at the end of being able to ignore how it was never really working for us all along, just the illusion of it, because we were comfortable for a while. And so the big reveal is that we were crazy all along. It's just now we know it. <laughs> and instead of dealing with it, uh, we're, we're, we're going in deep. <laughs> we're in this for the long haul. But anyway, maybe that's its own episode somewhere down the line. Who knows? Um, let's get to this episode with Tyler Cokejohn. And let's begin where we're all at right now, still, at least in America, COVID-19. What do you think the future of COVID is? I mean, before the fear was it will come back in the fall or the winter and it might be worse or it probably will be worse than it is now. But now that we've been out in the streets together, uh, is this even going away for the summer? That's a that's a, a very good question, and the problem with the, the uh, virus is that it's so new. There are a lot of things that we learn on the fly, uh, and so one one thing that uh, we have going for us here is that in warm weather and with some distance, uh, obviously they're not maintaining uh, good social distancing guideline recommendations, but. Uh, it, it could be that it, it's not as bad uh, as it as uh, I mean it's not that uh, huge of a risk for transmission that maybe we're, we're kind of lucking out here because they're largely out of doors. Uh, the other thing that has been hypothesized, but remember this is a hypothesis, is that when they tear gas people, they're setting the stage for uh, the uh, virus to spread better. And we that's eminently logical, but we don't know if that's how it really works. And so if you've ever been hit with tear gas, you know that it, it does make your uh, eyes uh, start to water. I mean, it's just really bad news. But I don't know how the virus would fare 
against that chemical either. And so that remains to be seen uh, as to uh, to where we're we're going uh, in terms of uh, the disease. You know, I will will the um, social unrest will it lead to more infections? I suspect that it will. Uh, but right now, I can tell you, I'm looking at uh, some of the states, uh, including my own, and uh, I think that they relaxed the restrictions too soon, and I, I think we're heading for trouble. I don't believe that we're going to get a summer break. Uh, I think we're going to have uh, this is just an opinion, okay, another hypothesis. I'm looking at the data, and I'm saying we're going to have a lot of locations. It will not be the same across the U.S. because there's so many different uh, situations now. We will uh, have uh, um, uh, outbreaks, uh, periodic uh, spark-ups, flare-ups, and, and I'm praying, praying that we don't overtop the emergency room capacity. And I'm seeing the first reports today uh, in our area that maybe there's something to worry about. So, uh, I, you know, Jeremy, I, I don't think that we have this thing totally controlled everywhere. And uh, I, I think it's it's a beast, and we're gonna we're gonna have trouble with it uh, for quite a while. And uh, hopefully, we can get through this without too many people losing their lives. But we've we've already got um, <laughs> indications are there that this is not going to be very pleasant. Well, and part of the way that they can reopen and pretend that none of this is happening is to not test enough. Are we still not testing enough? Uh, you could argue that if we um, if we tested everybody, I mean, some of the some of the plans are really uh, kind of too far out there. What people have really wanted, I think, and tried to uh, implore public health authorities to do is yes, test as necessary uh, for diagnostic purposes and try to get that uh, the backlog cleared so that that could be made available in a clinically useful time period. Uh, so we can cohort patients better, keep uh, healthcare employees from becoming infected, keep, keep it away from others. Uh, but what people are really uh, concerned about and worried about is uh, if we can keep uh, sort of like a, a lid on this, it'll be through finding people who are diagnosed and then uh, going back and saying, okay, now where do you work? Do you work inside? Uh, you know, do you have family members uh, with you in the same household? That's the contact tracing. And then uh, testing those people uh, and trying to find out which of them are, are positive. And then, you know, just giving them an indication like, yeah, you know what? You probably have this. So you want to be very careful if you go out with a mask uh, or maybe don't go out at all. Uh, that's the, the sort of testing, uh, what I would call directed or strategic testing program, uh, instead of trying to say, oh, yeah, we got to do everybody. Well, no, I, I won't save us either. We're going to do this the right way. So I personally believe, yeah, we're a little behind on this, and certainly in some areas. And uh, we've, gotta, we've, got to, we've got a ways to go to improve that. Um, I think there have been some indications that maybe uh, people have adopted the, the idea like, yeah, if you test, you're just going to find it. So what the heck? I, I hope that's really not true. I hope that's just me being overly suspicious. Well, and the one thing I hear people say is like, it's under 1%. 
of of all cases is the mortality rate. But I don't understand that because it's actually like five or six percent, at least in the United States, right? It depends. Uh, one of the things that you have going for you. Well, I mean, if you have a couple uh, of million people in- who get it, and then you've got a, a little over a hundred thousand people who die from it, isn't that five or six <laughs> percent? Like just to, well, it, uh, it, doing it, the math. It, yeah, math. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That thing. I failed math, so, and, and even even I know. Well, actually, okay, Carol did the math. Let, let's be honest. I didn't do any math. <laughs> It's uh, yes and no. When you go ahead and you take a look at cases, what we have now are, uh, let's assume accurately, formally diagnosed cases, tested cases. And then from that, we know that maybe 15% of the people who show up with symptoms will end up uh, with severe cases and hospitalized. And then 10% of those will unfortunately die. Uh, And so we can see that. But in terms of the, of the total take, of the disease, if you want to put it that way, um, we have a large number of people who don't get sick enough to even show up to get a test. Now, in the past, we, they, they couldn't because there weren't enough tests. But uh, anyway, let's assume that they could. We have a large number of people who are either asymptomatic or uh, mildly afflicted. And what will happen is when we do the antibody tests, the total case fatality rate will, in fact, drop. And so we could be under a a percent by the time we're done, which would put it in line with a a really uh, bad uh, flu in in the realm of what the 1918 killer flu could do. Now, let me take that away and say this agent even though uh, you could say, well, 99% of the people will survive it, uh, is still dangerous because uh, almost 100% of the people are eligible for it. So if it only kills, only, right, I, I shouldn't use that, that word, uh, one out of 100, we're looking at millions, millions of people gone. Yeah, we have over 300 million people. Uh, it's it's going to be a scourge if we don't keep this thing under control. And it's it, give it the chance. I don't know what to do. Let me ask you this. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but when I was doing Peritopia with Jeff Ritzman, we had on um, uh, a psychologist who was talking about hypnosis. And one of the things he said that stuck with me, which apparently wasn't his name, <laughs> is that uh, there's a difference between a psychologist um, who's practicing and one who is a professor, uh, that those who are in the education system tend to keep up, because they have to, with all the latest findings. And someone who's out doing their practice might not be uh, as up to date, because they're no longer reading those same journals. Does that apply to COVID as well? Like when we're talking about um, finding sources online of information who are doctors who have conflicting information, um, would it behoove us to to note whether or not they are with a a college or a university or not? Or does it not work that way for something like this? COVID is a great equalizer in this regard, Jeremy, because nobody knows nothing. It's, It's pretty new. And so the first thing we tried to do is extrapolate 
from what we believe were related cases like SARS 2002, 2003, and say, well, it'll do this, it'll do that. And it turns out now it does its own thing. And so, and again, the, the errors, and there have been plenty, have come from people who are very accomplished. And so, because we just didn't know. And so we made kind of our best, I guess it's a get, you know, I guess, but um, we, we did, people looked at it and said, well, I think, but we're, you know, hypothesizing. And we forgot to, to mention that we actually don't know this for a fact. And that makes it, um, the situation a little more dangerous uh, because uh, people can start to uh, supply their own facts that can be hard sometimes to, uh, to refute. And so one of the things that has been very interesting is the, the notion of where did this come from? And so we, we think, oh, yeah, it's like SARS. So therefore, it must have come from a wet market. And we will find it in the pangolin or some other animal that's the scaly anteater. And when we've gone and looked, we haven't quite been able to pin it down. We've got now uh, a more comprehensive examination just published in Nature, I think it was, uh, where it looks like it's pretty closely related to things that, that do come out of bats, but we don't have like the smoking gun uh, dead civet cat. We didn't track it down as quickly and easily as they did with SARS. And so uh, once you've got a gap like that, then other people can fill in. Uh, what they wish, nefarious or otherwise. So yeah, I, I do want to appreciate that you always do want to ask, like, what, you know, what can this person know? Uh, what are their potential conflicts? Uh, and how much authority do I want to uh, accord their their prognostications? Recognizing, though, in this particular instance, it's really been difficult because we are literally learning as we go. And, and you can see that. First, you don't need a mask. Now they're asking you to, to use a mask because it would help if you don't realize you have the infection uh, from perhaps uh, transmitting it onward to the next person. We learn these things as we go along. Well, that sounds like something that would be obvious with any virus or sickness. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't just say, yeah, wear a mask because it keeps you from getting other people sick. Oh, well, like, how is that uh, a part of this learning process? That should have been known. Like, I mean, wasn't that known with the plague doctors back (laughs) They wore masks. Yes, they they were uh, fighting bacteria, though. Uh, a little bit different. But really, though, of, but I mean, uh, it comes out of your mouth and your nose. Like, why? Why? We know this, right? Or was that yeah, part of the problem? Yeah. We didn't know yeah. that it was being airborne. We did not. Re- we think or thought that. Well, yeah, it pr- it could be airborne. Uh, and that would be uh, really disastrous. But a true airborne agent, say like measles, so I could have the measles walk into a classroom, cough, 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 and then walk out. And two hours later, a new ca- class could convene in there and somebody draw in the agent into their lungs and get infected. That's a true airborne. This one seems to be more droplet. And that's where the idea of uh, let's uh, just space people away and uh, that will help what they're saying now with the mask is uh, a way to even increase the margin of decreasing onward transmission even further, the mask would help with that. Remember, the mask isn't going to save you. There's no perfect sort of situation where you are, are not going to uh, be at some risk. Uh, we're just trying to improve things. So we, but this, this is, it, it does create some problems. 
because first you say this and then you say that and people get frustrated and, and I guess that's natural. Yeah, well, let's tie the last two bits we just talked about together. Um, the frustration of the vaccine and whether we can know we can have a vaccine. Um, at first, it sounded like, no, there wasn't. And then some guys from Oxford said, ah, we're on it. We'll have it post haste. But I, I recently saw uh, Michael Moore, the filmmaker, in an interview. And curiously, he mentioned that. He has sources in all sorts of places, like really, you know, we can believe him, uh, that are saying there ain't going to be no vaccine for at least the next two years. And the powers that be don't want to say that out loud because they don't want to worry us. Can we know whether or not we're going to have a vaccine uh, post haste in two years or ever? Okay. Here's here's the, the interesting Thing. You have to parse everybody's words very carefully because just as, as you mentioned, people don't want to say it out loud. And so it could be that certain people don't want to, to stoke the fears of defeatism. I guess not really defeatism uh, too much by saying, yeah, it'll take years. Uh, usually it does, but we're working very hard. A lot of people are working very hard to, to move this up. And so what you have to watch out for is we could have, let's just say, a vaccine uh, very quickly in a matter of months, but then you've got to produce the thing. And it, it sounds so simple, and we're so used to medical miracles, okay, that something comes up, you get a pill, you get vaccinated. We're so used to that. And we have, it has become invisible to us what all that really takes. So the question becomes, all right, let's, let's say we have something, the RNA vaccine is going to work now. How do we package it? What kind of buffer do we put it in? What kind of container? How do we seal that? Can we use a butyl rubber seal? Will that hurt the uh, product? Is it going to be in a multi-use vial? How long will it last? Getting it from hypothetical or yeah it worked uh, the way we want it to to mass produce itself is going to be an immense challenge now we can we can do challenges but what we don't want to do is rush ahead uh, too fast and then find out that it has really bad side effects or unanticipated adverse events is, is how we put that in science so there's a lot to this and that, that's where I would say uh, when reporters talk to some of these people, they need to get very specific, and then you can watch them squirm. When they, when they, but you mean by October, we'll have 100 million doses? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Hmm. So there's there's a lot of positive results. We will have a vaccine or vaccine journey. Right. That that day will come. How great they will be, or how side effect uh, plague they will or won't be remains to be seen. But I'm confident that we will have something that will work uh, in the majority of cases. And, and in addition, we will have other mechanisms to uh, bring this thing under control. Uh, and that could include antibodies, uh, passive immunizations that could save people's lives. And those are, those are coming along. Mm -hmm. So we will have mechanisms to stop this. I just can't tell you when. In a less... Uh, purely rational world, 
<laughs> uh, view. Let me also just say that Michael Moore, uh, Carol read to me this morning on Twitter. He wrote a little poem or something about all of this and basically drawing attention to how interesting it is that George Floyd says, I can't breathe. And the problem, uh, the problem is, of course, with police brutality there, but then also the problem with the world at large is with Mother Earth. The, um, you know, global warming and pollution and all of that can't breathe. But also, I don't think he mentioned this, the pandemic. The pandemic is also I can't breathe. So George Floyd really is giving voice to all of this stuff. I mean, not on purpose, of course, but it's there, isn't it? It's interesting. It seems like he really has captured the problem of 2020 onward that we can see, which is I can't breathe. How do you think that ends, Tyler? (laughs) Do you think we end up breathing or do you think we end up something else? Well, isn't that what you and Chiokasin kind of uh, touched on? in your episode is that I guess there's been two now uh, that we are maybe heading for um, either reconciliation or I guess I'll use the, the term the Chinese used when they were looking at their laboratories rectification by mother earth. Um, I would, I would say um, we have a lot of factors coming into play that could cause us grief, the pandemic being one of them. But the, the pandemic isn't going to be the, the great uh, thing that, that wipes out humanity. And we've already gone through that because, by and large, as terrible as it is, most people will still survive it. And, and when it comes to scourges, we are the problem. So, you know, Mother Earth isn't going to solve it with uh, COVID, coronavirus. Maybe it'll something else. I will will come out later, but everything like it or not, everything is uh, uh, connected. And and I think what you see with the the civil unrest right now is uh, a lot of things that have just been conflated together. Uh, Police brutality being maybe one of them uh, amongst uh, several. So it's very difficult to see how this plays out. It's very difficult from my standpoint to see how we survive as a society when, when we have our leaders so determined to uh, overturn all of uh, the environmental regulations that they possibly can. I don't see how that benefits anybody in the long term and uh, how far sighted uh, they are or aren't. I, I don't understand. I just see this as uh a very baffling move because we all breathe the same there. Yeah. We all, we all depend on mother earth. Well, I see this as, um, we're at death's door and what that means is some people, um, see transcendence and some people see suicide. Uh, so there's a big faction trying to suicide us into extinction, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> unconsciously, <laughs> And, uh, you know, well, some of them are conscious, right? Like the, the, the fundamentalists with their rapture and this sort of thing, because nobody came to save them. So let's get the road on the show here and uh, get the apocalypse going. I mean, I'm sure there's some of that. But, uh, but I mean, really, we're at that, that the death of 
um, if not our species, then certainly our society, certainly civilization as we quote unquote know it, um, this separate self sense that, um, you know, lives in exclusion to and above all else, um, that mind has to go. Uh, so it's either going to go kicking and screaming and taking everyone with it, or it's going to, you know, reflect upon itself and in that moment vanish. <laughs> uh, but here we are collectively. I mean, it's been an individual thing forever and ever, and that hasn't worked. So here we are collectively and we keep getting these, what I would say are chances at doing it or glimpses, you know, things that you can't ignore punches in the face, <laughs> punches in the gut. And, Maybe this is the one, maybe this is the one that we can't ignore, but they're coming fast and furious. And so I think when that happens, it tends to look coordinated and you tend to think that there's got to be an invisible hand at work on some level. And it's really us doing it. It's us living in the consequences of our own denial. The end. You know, I, I can tell you, I can tell you the answer. Go ahead. A, we're going to go kicking and screaming. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have absolutely no doubt about that, but I, I understand where, where you're going with this, and it is very concerning. And so, for me, uh, one of the things that that I was uh, concerned about ever since I don't know Earth Day. I remember the first Earth Day. Uh, the the concern that uh, we're we're really not doing the right things. And Jeremy, I'm not I'm not uh, sort of saying anything. Uh, for effect here, I remember being in college, and my one of the professors, his name was Ken Baldwin, said, "You guys, my class, my generation, you're going to have to solve this global warming thing." And and he he this was 1970, okay, and so he's talking about uh, the, exactly what has come to pass, exactly. And these people saw it clearly. And nobody listened. The only time, and I mean really the only time, that we got nervous was when uh, um, uh, Rowland, I think it was, uh, and uh, Molina published a paper about ozone depletion. And they managed to, to rally the planet to do something about chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and save the, the ozone layer. They actually did do something. But other than that, you know, our track record's pretty bad. We've got this extinction crisis looming over us. Uh, and you, you look at the corals. You probably have seen in your time in Hawaii how the ocean is changing. We're, this is not sustainable, you know? And, and so, like you say, we put ourselves above. That's a very shallow view of how things really work because uh, when we talk about the great deficit of insects and, and we've chemically, you know, sterilized the planet of insects. You're next, bud. Okay. You're, you're cutting the base of the pyramid out. We're, we're done. We're killing ourselves. So great. We've got big yields of corn, uh, you know, like we've never had before. Wonderful. And there isn't room for our, in our world for migratory monarch butterflies. You know, we can't, we're not smart enough to figure out how to coexist with them, for Christ's sake. Maybe we, you know, okay, that's it. I got to stop now. <laughs>